0: I'm Martin Reeves, Chairman of the BCG Henderson Institute. Welcome to our Thinkers and Ideas podcast, where we discuss important new books and ideas in business. Joining me today is Brian Elliott. Brian is an executive leader of something called the Future Forum, which is a consortium backed by Slack and also in partnership with the Boston Consulting Group and Miller Knoll and a group called the Management Leadership for Tomorrow. And the aim of that consortium is to help leaders to reimagine the future of work based upon data and research and dialogue. He spent the past three decades building teams and changing work as a startup CEO, product leader at Google, and also still an SVP at Slack. He's just co-authored a book called How the Future Works, Leading Flexible Teams to Do the Best Work of Their Lives, which came out in May of 2022 from Wiley and we're here today to discuss the book. So thank you for joining me, Brian, and congratulations on the book. Thanks, Martin.
1: Great to be here with you.
0: So it's a very popular and current topic, I think, which is probably why the book is doing so well, Brian. But these terms, the future of work and, and flexible work, they're sometimes a little bit ill-defined. Could you try and pin them down a little bit for us?
1: Sure, absolutely. So from a future work perspective, what myself and my team are focused on at Future Forum is talent. At the end of the day, talent is what drives competitive advantage for businesses. And so a lot of our research, our work across companies is focused on is how do you attract, retain, and engage talented people in your endeavor? We've all felt this and seen this over the past five decades. The shift in what actually drives competitive advantage basically comes down to that. It's not financial capital. It's not physical capital. It's the people. And what we've seen over the past couple of years is a real sea shift in what it actually means to bring those people in, to retain them, to be productive with your organization. And flexibility is a word that that you hear a lot out there. What we mean by it is there's all kinds of terms around things like remote or hybrid or other things out there that usually talks about where people work when that's sort of the tip of the iceberg. Flexibility is more than just where people work. It's how, and really importantly, when we work as well unlock the potential in people, organizational performance, and importantly, to build more inclusive organizations. We really need to think about how we redesign work, how we work, but not just where, and importantly, when we work, to enable teams with flexibility to do better work from an organization perspective. It's really key.
0: Thanks for that. I think that sets the stage well. So let's dig into some of the ideas in your book. One of the propositions in your book is that this sort of COVID-induced opportunity to think about work was actually tapping into something that was already a problem. You say that the sort of industrial era model of work of nine to five in the office was already obsolete. So that prompts me to ask you, why has it taken such a long time for this to change then?
1: Yeah, I think if you look back the last couple of decades, you've seen these massive shifts, right? We've seen massive demographic shifts in who's showing up at work. We've also seen major technological advances, consumerization of IT, the prevalence of broadband into people's homes, all of which was essential building blocks for helping us all sort of survive and in an often case thrive through the pandemic. But what it really took in terms of helping us all question a lot of conventional wisdom was the sort of live experimentation that we were all doing. Change is hard, uh, let's face it. Uh, the, The assumptions that we all had, and I've led teams for several decades myself, The assumptions I had about nine to five, five days a week in the office being where work happened, were really deeply rooted. And it was really hard for us to sort of step back and say we could do something different. I was actually leading a product and engineering team at Slack at the beginning of the pandemic. And we would have this conversation among our executive team pre-pandemic about whether we should spin up a remote team. And we never got around to doing it because it always seemed too hard and too antithetical with the way that we had operated, even though we saw other models out there. And the reason why we kept asking that question is, it's really hard to recruit people when you're geographically bounded in places like San Francisco, New York, and London. So the opportunity that this unlocked was for a lot of us to sit there and go, that conventional wisdom that we held for so long, even though academics would tell us we were wrong, it turns out there are better ways of working from an organizational perspective. But I think it's a real challenge if you don't go through that experience.
0: One thing I I was thinking as I read the book was, I wonder whether you're talking about something which is desirable and possible, or whether you're talking about something that has already happened, or whether you're talking about a, a change that's underway which hasn't quite happened. Could you sort of calibrate where we are in the process?
1: I think where we are right now is it's desirable and it is starting to happen. I think there's a lot of challenges, and some of this goes back to psychology for all of us, but there's a lot that people have wanted to be like in the next three months we're going to get it all, all sorted out. Think about you know the fact that we are now two and a half years into either a pandemic or post-pandemic period. And for so much of that time, everyone has sort of hoped that three months from now, we'll have it all straightened out. I think that's sort of wishful thinking. The changes that have happened are gonna take time to play out. It's gonna take years for us to see how change continues to progress through organizations. We're at a time where there's been major disruption from an economic perspective, as well as from a business perspective. And so a lot of companies are making decisions at this point in time. They're making decisions around orientation, really. Am I returning? Am I going back to things that were the conventional wisdom that worked in the past? Or am I taking sort of the best of what I've learned over the past couple of years and combining it with access to shared space again to build something better? And I think that orientation leads you into different places and requires sort of ongoing investment, not a sudden, you know, the clouds part, the light appears and we've got it all figured out
0: core idea of your book, this idea of flexibility, flexibility in time and space. You began to touch on some of the benefits of that, talent attraction. Are there others? Why, why should people embrace this new flexible way of working?
1: So there's a couple of key things. From an individual perspective, we see better results. So from an individual perspective, people understand that you know, work-life balance has gotten better with the ability to, if nothing else, cut back on the commute or the frequency of the commute. People's stress levels are much more manageable when they've got flexibility. Let's take a couple of examples. Location flexibility, which 80% of people want, is not that all those 80% want to be fully remote. In fact, very few do. Most people want time together with their team, but they want it to be about choice. They want it to be about purpose. They want it for team building as much as they want it for collaboration. Giving them that location flexibility has business benefits as well. We see 4% higher productivity scores for people who have location flexibility versus those that don't. And there's plenty of other academic studies that'll give you the same answer. 4% may not sound like a lot, but we, you know, you multiply it out 40 hours a week, uh, 4%, that's over an hour and a half on a weekly basis of gain productivity. The second part though, is this issue of schedule flexibility. 94% of people want schedule flexibility. And again, just like the location flexibility issue, they don't want a free for all. They just want something less than nine to five expectations, five days a week that you can jam meetings into that calendar or worse yet, eight until eight. The challenge that we've faced over the past couple of years is that the growth in video meetings, in meetings period, is continuing to sort of sap not only people's stress levels, but also productivity. The 30 minute video calls sort of become the, the default solution for almost every problem, turning our calendars into Swiss cheese. If you give people schedule flexibility, the people that have it, the ability to constrain to something less than that sort of nine to five jam packed full of meetings, you get bigger productivity gains. You get better work-life balance, you get lower stress, but we also see productivity scores in people who have schedule flexibility that are 29% higher than those that don't have it. And it's kind of understandable. We all feel it, right? We all feel that sort of like, if what you're doing is shoving my core work hours into you know, after nine o'clock at night, the odds that I'm really good at that point in time in my day are pretty low.
0: So it sounds great, but like all good things, there must be a cost. So, taking this flexible way of working, what is what is the cost of that?
1: There's a couple of issues here. One is the cost is really about an investment. It does require that you sort of step back and rethink a lot of the assumptions that you've got about work and how core processes work. A straightforward example is onboarding, right? Onboarding is a process that really didn't work very well for most organizations pre-pandemic as well. But over the course of the pandemic, we all had to sort of reinvent it and rethink it, and now we've got in a lot of organizations that we see much better onboarding processes than we did before because we brought intention to it, right? We started thinking about how do we take the administrivia of onboarding and push that into asynchronous tasks that people can do. The video they can watch, the forms they have to fill out, you know, the the sort of check the box type of activities and focus the onboarding time that you've got with people on understanding history and culture of the organization, exposure to executives, time together. Onboarding's gotten better as well if you do things like figure out people's 30, 60, 90-day onboarding plans and get much more prescriptive about how you build networks for people. All of that takes time and attention and intentionality. But it's the kind of thing that if you do it, you can also build flexibility into it and you can also yield better outcomes in terms of people's speed to onboard, their productivity and all the rest of it. The same is true with almost every other business process. It's a bit of thinking about how we approach traditionally our customers and thinking about our employees as our customers. What are the ways in which we can optimize for better outcomes for people broadly?
0: There must be some things that you can't do virtually or asynchronously. I mean, presumably, if you're in charge of nuclear power plant safety or something, I mean, you know, it's inconceivable that it would be remote. What can't we do in this flexible mode that you outline?
1: There are a lot of roles and jobs that require you to be there physically to do the job, right? In the book, we talk about Genentech as an example. So, Genentech, biotech firm mostly on the west coast of the U.S., owned by Roche. R&D lab workers have to be in the lab a certain number of days a week, right? But they don't have to be in the lab five days a week. And one of the things that Genentech realized at the beginning of the pandemic was they had set a Friday afternoon, four o'clock social hour. It was mandatory for managers. There was an end-of-week celebration. It was honestly not the world's greatest idea because it meant that people, especially caregivers, were stuck with a Friday, 4 p.m., activity on their calendars every single week, making them late coming home. That type of activity wasn't necessary in terms of how and where the job happened, nor was it well-placed. The ability to think about R&D workers and the fact that you have to be in the lab a couple of days a week in order to get the job done, but you can also work from home when you're doing analysis is a big deal. There's a bigger one, Martin, that BCG's partnered up with us on and has talked about, which is deskless workers, the frontline. Right? So there are people out there that have real challenges in terms of you need to be there to get the job done. There's still an element of flexibility for those people, though, too. And some of the work that we've seen that BCG has done, there's a really big benefit to finding ways to invest in flexibility for that group as well. Flexibility isn't the same, but it's issues like, how do I swap schedules? How do I have more fractional schedules for people so that people who have either desire or need for a later shift or an earlier shift or a more fragmented one can opt into it? Organizations that are adopting that type of flexibility also get benefits. Think about it this way. Swapping a shift means the ability for somebody to find coverage for themselves as opposed to calling in sick. It's a better business outcome too.
0: You've touched on there, I think, the need to and the possibility of having different types of flexibility for different job categories. Does that give rise to fairness or perceptions of fairness sort of issues in in firms? and, And how can we deal with those?
1: I think the biggest risk that we run there is proximity bias, to be honest. So, one of the things that we see in our research really consistently is the desire for flexibility is much higher for women, but we also see it for people of color. Uh, Black employees, Hispanic, Latinx employees in the US want location flexibility more than their white colleagues. One of the risks that we run in terms of fairness, honestly, is if we are rewarding people on the basis of who's coming back to the office most often, we run the risk of actually further dividing people in terms of race, ethnicity, uh, gender issues, as opposed to doing what we should do, which is rewarding people on the basis of the outcomes they generate.
0: So that, that's the solution then to, to focus on outcomes and to communicate that is the case.
1: There are two things that I think are really core to making flexibility work. One is shifting from monitoring and attendance-based management, which honestly doesn't work that well in the first place, but it's easy, to focusing on outcomes, like being clear about what are the top organizational outcomes? How does that ladder up, ladder down within your organization, down to the team level, down to the individual level? Being crisp about outcomes and priorities is a really key unlock for allowing the type of flexibility that people want, but it's also better from an organizational perspective. The other real key investment area is we need to move away from thinking that we can easily have all the answers to experimentation, iteration, and kind of a continuous learning mode that we all need to be in. When we launched our own efforts at Slack, when Slack, by the way, again, was office-based pre-pandemic, The phrase we used was, we're after progress, not perfection. You know, we need to find a way to continually learn.
0: Now, of course, there are some companies that we read about in the newspapers that conspicuously do not buy your thesis. They're pushing very hard to get people back in the office. They insist that it's uh, necessary. Is that a viable option or or are those companies going to be left behind, you think? Is your hypothesis this is not just desirable and possible, but it would be gravely disadvantageous for any company not to uh, pursue it?
1: I think the challenge is top-down mandates generally don't work. Top-down mandates at a company of any size, a 1,000 people plus, is a one-size-fits-all assumption that probably doesn't work for your organization. We would never propose to do that to our customers. Why would we do it to our employees? The worst of those is five days a week. We see this in the data. Five days a week in the office creates a lot more stress, a lot less work-life balance, and importantly, a lot less productivity in employees. It's literally a worse outcome than allowing people the flexibility that they want. Even if you manage to get them to do that, you then run a bigger risk, which is talent. And no matter what the economy is, and I've led teams and organizations through two prior recessions myself, top talent is key to getting through challenging economic times. And it's even more essential if you want to accelerate coming out of it. And top talent always has a
0: choice. They're the ones that
1: will make or break this. And if they want flexibility, they will move from one organization to another.
0: Right, presumably, especially in a very tight labor market. Absolutely. Let me ask you about a question where you've got a clear vested interest, which is tools. You know, you're a part of a company that, that has one of the tools for remote collaboration. What can't we do on Zoom and Slack yet? The tools, I think, and I'll show you the degree that they perform much better than perhaps we expected going into COVID. But nevertheless, it's a two dimensional mosaic of videos of people. There must be, must be limitations. What is it that we need the tools to do that they can't yet do?
1: I think it's less about what we need the tools to do that they can't do than just recognizing that both is actually a better answer. So our own phrase internally is we're digital first. That means we wanna make sure that the experience that people have, because most, let's face it, most of the communication and collaboration people do these days is in digital tools, not walking the hallways of an office. But our phrase is digital first doesn't mean never in person. You do need people to get together episodically. My own team is spread across North America. We get people together at least once a quarter for three to four days. And the intent is as much about socialization as it is about the work, right? It's relationship building, it's meals together, it's icebreaker exercises that are more in-depth. It's a volunteer activity. That type of in-person relationship building is really essential. It's, it's a way in which you build bonds, emotional and trust-wise. So I think bringing them both together is really important. From a tools perspective, there's actually an interesting divide that we're seeing grow, which is generational in nature. So I'm old enough that I'm Gen X. I'm not a digital native, but we're now two generations of digital natives in the workforce. And a lot of us as executives make assumptions about how culture and connection get built that actually aren't true for most of our organization. You need people to come together to build those bonds you know, occasionally, but they can also be built and maintained digitally. We see this in the data. People who are in flexible work environments are over 50% more likely to say that their company's culture has actually improved over the past couple of years. We also measure the difference between like the digital haves and the have-nots. We look at people who are in technology leaders versus laggards in terms of tool adoption. And that difference between the leaders and the laggards has really grown over the past couple of years around sense of belonging. So people use these tools to also have, not just the happy hour, but share the pictures of the kids.
0: Let me come at the same question from a slightly different angle. I mean, presumably... You say in this mixed model, you know, physical and virtual, you know, sometimes we need to do physicals. There must be some modalities, some functions for which physical is better. Some people would say, for instance, you know, creativity exercises, but, but actually you refute that in the book. But whatever it is, whatever we can do better live and face to- face, why can't we do that on the tools that currently exist, and, and potentially could we do some of those things better with new tools? I do think from a from a tools perspective, you know, the ongoing investments
1: are in how do you make it easier for people to communicate in a variety of different mechanisms? People absorb information in different ways and work in different ways. I do think there is a core element of relationship building that is beneficial strongly if you're actually live and together. And maybe we get to a future where AR and VR enable that in in more real ways that are actually bridging some of those gaps as well but I still think there's just something about physically seeing people, their expressions, their reactions that is actually important from a human relationship development perspective that always is gonna be an essential ingredient. I do think like to the question about creativity and innovation, it's a really interesting one because we all make these assumptions. I make them myself. I'm, I'm probably one of those people that prior to this was guilty of wanting to get people in front of a whiteboard, partly bluntly because I like controlling the pen and that's part of the problem, right? In our research, as well as others, what we see is that there's exercises like brain writing that are actually really beneficial, giving your team the prompt, in our case, the research report, giving people time to go through it, pull out what they see as the most salient, interesting observations, ask them to write it down, but not share it until you come together, whether virtually or in real life. What you're doing in that is you're getting rid of the group filtering that always happens, almost always happens in a live setting. You're asking people to come up with ideas. They're going to come up with ideas individually you're going to get a wider range of better ideas and worse ideas than you would if you are all sitting in a room together trying to do it as a live exercise.
0: We did some research at the Henderson Institute early in, into COVID about the impact of digital tools. And one of the things we found was that acculturation, network building, social capital was the downside to all of the upside that you mentioned, which we, which we detected too. And that seemed to do with who got invited to meetings somehow the networks became more concentrated. So if you were new or peripheral to a network, you might not get invited to the meeting. And, and I guess that's linked to the idea of serendipity, which is one of the things about being in a, in a physical space is you bump into people in the kitchen and you have a chat that turns out to be extraordinarily relevant, although you didn't anticipate it. So I've, I've wondered, can we somehow build this serendipity into, into the work tools that we have? Is that something you've thought about?
1: That's actually a great one. It is an issue. And what we see in the, in the data is that weak ties right, is what's atrophied over the past couple of years. And those weak ties are really a challenge in terms of how you build them up. It ties to my team have gotten stronger. Ties to other parts of the organization a little bit weaker. By the way, ties to my company's culture and, and my executives may have done just fine in our research. The weak tie stuff comes back to intentionality too. You all have done the research and seen this. The water cooler effect actually still is pretty limited in its scope, and you know it usually happens with teams that happen to sit on the same floor. And we're all working with organizations that are spread out among cities and countries, let alone the same floor. So there's some really interesting practices that we've seen people develop. Some of it comes back to things like onboarding. So one of the tips that we get into in the book that comes from one of the companies that we work with is give everybody who's onboarded six connections outside of their team, to network with. And each of those six is to give them two to three more to help them build it.
0: Right. Well, I guess this is a theme for technology in general. When the technology becomes the end rather than the means, we forget that it's all about the human protocols and the objectives of the work and so on. Because not inviting people with weak ties to meetings and not creating a space of serendipity, I mean, that's not a technological issue. But it could, I can imagine, in principle, be solved technologically. But it comes back to intentions,
1: yeah. Let me, give you, let me give you a way in which you can potentially solve it, which is I think the same problem can occur in physical environments as well, right? Because who you invite to a meeting is always an interesting question. I've seen people build up, there's an app called Donut in Slack, but I've seen people build these types of things themselves. It's essentially a network development application that you can build. Literally goes around and says, let me essentially program this thing and say, I want all of my senior leaders to meet each other over some period of time." You set up how frequently you want it to run and you end up with the coffee that you have with somebody where it's randomly selecting somebody from a different part of your business. Those types of connections are actually really valuable. And if you build it that way, you're going to be more intentional and you're not going to leave people out. You can build a, a much more you know, broad-based and more intentional way of networking, I think, if you actually think about the process you want.
0: I've been looking for such a thing, so I'll definitely uh, check that out. You know, I, I enjoyed your book. One chapter I sort of, I guess I wanted, I was looking, where's that chapter was on the broader aspects of the future of work. If I think about the future of work, certainly the most prominent issue is this issue of flexibility, remoteness, and asynchronous work. But there's a lot of other things that are going to change work, right? Like the demographic aging, like the sustainable growth rates in, in developed economies with the rise of China and, and so on, you know, where manufacturing takes place. The retalling of supply chains, given the brittleness that we've seen, which may lead to some, some reshoring AI, both as a substitute and a complement to work. Would you say that's, that's a broader topic that you were never intending to cover with the, the book? Or, or are there ways in which these broader questions intersect directly with this question of flexibility?
1: I think each one of the topics you just mentioned, Martin, is a book in and of itself, right? And they're all probably fantastic books, but you can go in depth on any one of those. Our focus remains on talent and the flexibility and how it unlocks potential and talent. The other thing that that does is if you're focused on outcomes, if you're focused on sort of reinventing and redesigning how the work gets done, you're also going to be a much more agile organization and be able to be more responsive to the variety of challenges that are coming your way. You know, the past two years have been one set of challenges that are a bit more pandemic oriented, but everything else that you just mentioned requires organizational responsiveness that a more brittle, more top-down mandate, more command and control enterprise is not going to solve.
0: Right. Okay. So if I'm a CEO listening to this and I'm thinking, yep, I better, better get my act together, I better sort of look more systematically or with greater urgency at the issue of flexibility, where, where would I begin? What's a good way of thinking about a, a program to begin to tap into these possibilities and questions? So I think
1: besides reading our book, and by the way, Sheila Supermunion and Helen Cutt, my co-authors are fantastic authors and better writers than I am to be direct. It's, it's got great examples and stories. But the other one is listen to your own teams. One of the biggest challenges that we see out there is 60% of executives tell us that they're not directly involving their employees in their future of work plans. And that's really risky. We all know it and we all feel that our executive suites do not look like the demographics or the backgrounds or the challenges that our employees face things as simple as dual income households and who holds them, you know, grow as you work your way down the organizational chart. The differences in needs and the differences that are expressed to us in the research by women, women with children, Black, Hispanic, Asian American office workers in the States are really material. And so finding ways to engage your employees directly in this conversation is pretty essential.
0: So maybe finally, because we're out of time, unfortunately. Let me wrap up with a more personal question. So, you've been writing about this. Your day job concerns the tools for doing this uh, flexibility, but probably I imagine you've been personally affected by it too. So, have you been affected by these possibilities and needs for flexibility as as the COVID crisis has unfolded? I've learned
1: a lot myself. You know, I've always changed and grown my career through focusing on what am I learning? Am I learning something new? And the last two years have been a major learning opportunity. In the last two years, my wife and I have become empty nesters. (laughs) Then we weren't again, and now we are again. So kind of back and forth in terms of the kids and college and all the rest of that. In many ways, we've been really privileged. We've had it easy versus what a lot of other people have gone through. But I've also learned a lot that I wish I knew before about the nature of work, what it takes to be successful as an organization, and honestly, what it takes to be successful as a leader. And I've learned a lot of that by listening, uh, and particularly by listening to my team. And Sheila and Helen, my co-authors, who are fantastic coaches and leaders, and have really helped me understand a lot. One simple example, I'm the type of leader that always said things like, you know, I want you to focus on the work, focus on the outcomes, not worry about, you know, being quick to respond to me on something. But I would still send off the occasional email or Slack message at 10 o'clock at night and say, don't worry about it, you know, get to this in the morning. And what, what people were kind enough to tell me is that doesn't work. It doesn't work because human psychology doesn't work that way. If they see that notification, if they see that email and they read it, they then have a choice. It's 10 o'clock at night. Are they going to respond to it? or Are they going to spend the night thinking about it? So super simple type of stuff, which is scheduled send is your friend in Slack or in email, whatever tool you happen to use. That's a big deal. The other one that I've learned personally is, and this has been hard. This has been like decades of learning is I don't have all the answers and I never will and that's actually just fine. As leaders, we need to move away from thinking that we are responsible for having all the answers to saying and holding two things at the same time. We have a vision, we have a mountain that we are gonna climb as an organization, but we also don't have all the answers and we are depending on all of you to help us figure out the path to the top of that mountain. And if you can do that, you open up so much in terms of not just vulnerability, but engagement.
0: Well, thank you so much for spending time with me today, Brian, and congratulations again on the book, which is, I think, on the bestsellers list, so so well done.
1: Thanks, Martin, much appreciated.
0: I've been talking to Brian Elliott, co-author of How the Future Works, which came out in May of 2022 from Wiley, written by himself and his co-authors, Sheila Subramanian and Helen Cup. I really enjoyed the book. It's, a, it's an issue that's applicable to any company. I think all companies are considering this issue right now, whether voluntarily or because their employees are demanding it. And, you know, I think at a a superficial level, we all understand the logic of flexibility, but in terms of how to execute it, how to execute it by job category, how to redesign work, how to bring people along, the right choices for your organization. The thing I enjoyed about the book was it was very balanced. It had a lot of original research on these topics. It was fairly modest in terms of saying we don't have all of the answers, but there are some very tangible actions and steps in the book too. So much appreciate you joining us, Brian. If you like the conversation, make sure you're subscribed on your favorite podcasting platform. As always, we welcome feedback, so send your comments to the BCG Henderson Institute directly.